Welcome to Your Life, The Sequel. A podcast about getting your act together and making changes happen in your life. You want change and we want to help you with guests and discussions about how to make change in your life, whether big or small, change can happen. This is your chance to become the person you were meant to be. Now, here we are, Rick Roshan and Melissa Carlson. And this is Your Life, The Sequel. Welcome, everybody. I'm Melissa Carlson. Hey, Melissa Carlson. This is Rick Roshan. Thank you so much for joining us on Your Life, The Sequel, a super inspiring podcast helping people over 40 to make some change in their life. Doesn't have to be big change. Doesn't have to be little change. If you're interested in change, you're in the right spot. I'm really excited to have a longtime friend, Helen Smolinski, with us today. She is an inspirational story. She went from civil rights to open mics. And I want to hear all about her journey, taking the leap to get into stand-up comedy after the age of 40. And Helen, welcome to the podcast. Please talk to us about your story and how you wound up doing open mics. Sure. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Rick. Although I got to be honest, I'm sorry. I thought you guys invited me on to talk about the hashtag Free Britney campaign. <laughs> all, the, all the work I've been doing. <laughs> Free Britney. That's the next podcast, Helen. That's the next one. Very important stuff. It's near and, it's near and dear to you. It is. I mean, did you guys see that, by the way, yeah. the, the doc? Uh, yeah. I love those women. They were fans who followed her Instagram and tracked her, tracked this story down. Yeah. And noticed women she supporting had women. Used, yes, exactly. It was amazing. And so I'm all for it. I love it. <laughs> you yeah. love a movie. Right, so I, I do. Story. I do. Um, but anyway, right. so I guess that's not why I'm here. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Um, no, uh, sincerely, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, I, I frankly don't think my story is that different from lots and lots and lots of other people. It's, it's life, right? We move from one thing to another. You know, I, I started out at a young age. I remember being too young to say this when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, which was a lawyer. I think I must have been nine. I mean, that's just sad. So, um, but I, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer and I, I, you know, wanted to make a difference. That was my thing. I wanted, I wanted to do something that I thought would help people. So that was the road I chose and I kept going and, um, with some detours here and there, but I, I always thought, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and so I, uh, after law school, I worked at a, at a nonprofit civil rights organization for almost 10 years and left as the managing director. Um, and we did work in the area of race, immigration, and poverty. And I ran their um, low-income small business owners program, um, a micro-enterprise program we, where we help low-income folks start and run small businesses. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. And it was very rewarding. And then I went off and had my two kids. I had twins. And, you know, one of my uh, a joke I like to tell is that I'm uh, gay, married with two kids, and I used to be a lawyer. And now I'm a stay at home mom. And my wife thinks that's a joke. But, um, <laughs> um, but it's true, you know, and, and Rick knows my wife blue. And yeah, she, you know, she was as surprised as anyone when we decided to keep me home. 
And once we had the kids and I, I did that. And after a couple of years, my sister was dating a guy, an engineer at Google or Yahoo, one of those. And I learned that he did stand up on the side. And it was really one of those moments where I was like, really? You know, you, 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 you might call it arrogance. Really? Really? Okay. You might call it arrogance, but I'm from New Jersey, so I'm not, I'm not allowed to be arrogant. Okay? It was more like moxie. Like, not that I think I can do anything. It was more like, well, if you can do it. Yeah. I certainly can do it. <laughs> All right. So, so call that whatever you will. I'm going with Moxie. Yes. And he, he had like been it. taking classes at the San Francisco Comedy College. I don't know if it's still around. This is about eight years sounds, ago or so. Sounds unfortunate. <laughs> and, and, and my sister signed me up for classes. So, uh, so that's how it started. Wow. That's quite a turn. Quite the turn. <laughs> yeah. So if you were to literally, if you were to go up to people at a bus stop and say what sounds like the most awful thing to do in life, I think stand-up comedy is probably at the top of that list as terrifying experiences. So you decided that you wanted to give this a try. So how did you start building your process around like you have to have material, you have to practice your material? Like what, what is your, we really love to come out of these um, conversations with actionable items that people can use in their own life about putting together some sort of a plan to do something. Sure. So, so this is super scary for a lot of people and you jumped into it headlong. What was your process? So I, I went to my first class, right? My sister had already signed me up. I went to the first class it was, it was at like seven o'clock at night, which is very doable for me. So, so that was a, a plus in terms of my bedtime. And, um, you know, I get there and honestly, it's about 20 guys, me and one other woman. And the other woman, I'm, I'm immediately thinking, yay, sisterhood, right? Well, when we go around the room and introduce ourselves, we get to her and she explains that she's just out of prison <laughs> she had three DUIs. She's not allowed to drive in Idaho ever again. And she told a parole officer, wait for it, that she was going to college in San Francisco. So, so, she's, so basically, she's going to steal all your material. Exactly. I don't know if that was a bit or not, but I loved it. And I loved her. And wow. I thought, this is the place for me. That was at the beginning of class. But by the end of class, and it was taught by this I, you know, I forget his name, but I remember kind of increasingly being turned off because it was so, you know, honestly, just so male, mm. you know, meaning the, the last piece that kind of put me off was he said he kept insisting that all of our sets, any good set should end with a sex joke. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, you know, and, and that's 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 not my style. <laughs> you, you know me, Rick. I'm not really one of those comics. No, I'm not, that's, that's... <laughs> I'm not blue. I'm not my wife blue. <laughs> no, that's not that's not your jam. No. But it, but anyway, so long story short, so by the time I left that night, I really was like, I don't think I'm coming back. I get the gist. I'm old enough at this point to know like my own sense of humor. So. You know, what, what was helpful, though, was at the end of class that night, 
we, a bunch of us at the, at the urging of our teacher said, Hey, why don't we all go to the purple onion? It's just around the corner, a comedy club in North beach, which I, I don't think is there anymore. And everybody's going to get up tonight. Oh my and again, God. it was one of those things where like, you know what? I'm not going to come. I'm not going to be out at 10 o'clock at, at this point. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm not going to be out at 10 o'clock at night again for a long time. I might as well. Yeah. Honestly. If ever. If ever. If, yeah. if, if ever. <laughs> so I did it. I got up and, you know, I made a bunch of rookie mistakes. I wasn't paying attention to the guy showing me his iPhone, telling me my time was up. So I had three <laughs> minutes and I think I did five, which is nobody else's problem the first time up people <laughs> right. are scrambling for stuff but that was oh, my yeah. problem <laughs> and you know I, you know i want this noted this was about 2013 i don't know who i'm noting this for anyone other than myself <laughs> but this was before the marvelous mrs Maisel. thank you very much so you're and, a, you're a you're a trailblazer <laughs> before <laughs> before stay-at-home moms were doing this and i think too because some of my early jokes were about the fact that i had this newly diagnosed disabled daughter. And that sounds like an awful thing to say, but certainly some of my, my motivation for getting up there and doing it back then in 2013 was in retrospect, exercising some of that grief. Mm. And it was helpful. Can you talk more about that? Like what you mean by that? My family and I, from, from growing up to the family I've created now with Blue, we laugh a lot and we just, you have to, um, in my estimation. And, you know, I, ha- I had these beautiful twin babies, one of whom was severely disabled. And that was a complete surprise to us. And so we were in shock for probably the first year. And we had friends and family tell us repeatedly, guys, there are parent groups out there, support groups, you should go, you're not alone you know, talk with other people, get some help. Blue and I thought we were doing okay, but we were like, all right, all right, we'll, we'll try it, we'll go. Well, we went one night to a local support group and um, nobody else showed up. <laughs> we, were, we literally were alone. <laughs> I mean, it, it turned out later that it was like during the summer, so a lot of families don't normally go to the summer sessions. But I mean, that was really like- It wasn't that- hazing the new kid. <laughs> yeah, we always meet here. See there. <laughs> exactly. So, so I mean, I mean, so like my life is like a joke like that. You know what mm. I mean? So that that was that was joke number one about the disability world that we were entering. You know, another one so Blue and I later went back to the to that support group when other people were there. And I we remember being in this conference room with maybe six or seven other couples. And about five, 10 minutes into the meeting, another couple walks in and they were like confused. And they were like, is this the group for parents of kids with Down syndrome? And Blue and I look at, and it wasn't, it was a group for parents of kids with very severe disabilities. And Blue and I are shooting each other looks. And I whisper to her like, get out of here. Your kid can be on Glee. Your kid can be a star. Get out of here. You know, so, so I know Tignataro did a lot about breast cancer. I'm, I'm the disabled kid comic. <laughs> it's an open field, an open market for you. So 
You started doing the stand-up. Were you terrified? Because I think that the thing that is really inspirational in your story, there's lots of inspiration in your story, but I think the thing, you just happily got up on stage having one comedy class under your belt. What are you saying to yourself? Like, are you just the kind of person that just does stuff? Or are you the kind of person that doesn't get too caught up in analysis and then going, oh, I can't do it. I won't be any good. Like, how do you think about that kind of stuff? Let me clear things up, something up. I got up and I did a few sets. I, I So I did Purple Onion. I noticed that there had there were two bars literally around the corner from my old apartment on Clement Street that had open mic nights, comedy open mic nights. So I did those a few times. I did um, a family talent show at the Blind Babies Foundation family camp. Killed, by the way. Killed. <laughs> and um, I tried out for the JCCSF, the Jewish Community Center, San Francisco community talent show. Did not make it. What? But um, it, was, it was over the course of maybe five months that I was, I was getting up at least once a month, <laughs> which is nothing, by the way, and doing my stuff. And what was motivating me was, I know I'm funny. Now, that, that sounds immodest, and it is, but I'm a mess about a lot of things. And you asked me whether I analyzed it to death. I analyzed to death lots of other things, okay? But mm-hmm. this I knew, you know, I knew I could tell a story. And I'd always kind of kept a running list of jokes, if you will, or just funny things. Sure. I always Anec- had that anecdotes. running. Yeah. yeah, anecdotes like in my notes app on my phone, mm-hmm. right? So I, I also felt like I'm never at a loss for material. Now, that first run at doing stand-up was short-lived. So, so you, you hear how that cockiness came through and, and likely didn't serve me well. But it got me that far that I was getting up. I think it was after one too many seven-minute sets at the neck of the woods where I was reaching a lot of like college guys that I was, you know, like, that's not my audience. (laughs) Blue Blue likes to joke that like literate women over 70 is my my audience. You know, the Joan Joan Didion, Virginia Woolf types. I I wish. And they they love a laugh. They do. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so like, I stopped doing it and it really wasn't until the summer of 2019 that I got back into it and, and, and really in earnest. And again, you know, that was motivated by a different family camp. My family and I go to something, uh, San Francisco's family camp in Yosemite called Camp Mather. And we'd been going for every summer for the last three years. 2019 comes, they do a talent show every week at the end of camp. And I, I told my son, my, my daughter's twin brother, who's, um, who's typical, um, meaning not disabled, uh, he, I said, hey, Jers, his name's Jersey, we should do the, the talent show. And I said, if you do it, I'll do it. So he agreed. And all week we're kind of working on different things. I think he was going to do magic. Well, you know, I, I should have seen this coming a mile away, but come the day of the talent show, he backs out uh-huh. and I am this close to wanting to do the same thing, right? Because uh-huh. at this point, that's probably, Camp Mather is, audience is probably going to be my biggest audience to date at like maybe a <laughs> hundred, maybe a hundred wow. people of kids and adults. Anyway, 
long story short, I realized this is a teachable moment for him and for me. And I have to do this. So I was like, all right, it's not going to be so bad. In years past, all the kids went first. The parents didn't go on until the end. When most people leave anyway, I'm good. Well, they did that in every year except this year. Turns out, not only are they mixing the adults and kids, but I'm scheduled to go on first. (laughs) And anyway, I do it. And, you know, it was okay. Um, You know, it was a very generous audience of other parents and kids. But I loved, love, love, love having my son see me do this and see me be kind of nervous and but do it anyway. And and from there, it was kind of like nonstop. When I got home, I entered a contest at the at a local bar that was having a stand up comedy contest. I did that. I didn't place. But the the guy who was running it, a comic who was running it, liked me well enough. And he said, you know, come back anytime you want. So I was going there probably twice a month. At this point, it was about showing my modeling for my son mm-hmm. doing this, you know, this, this, that we're, we're participators in life. We're, we're not just audience. We can be performers too, but like we do things. And, but it was also for me, it was at this point, like I, I just wanted my tight seven. I had done it enough, meaning I wanted like a good seven minutes of material with seven minutes to most, it doesn't sound like anything, and it sounds like a lot. But but it's still, it's like two or three minutes a joke, actually. And then mm. I just wanted it tight. I, I felt like I had that in me. And I wanted to get to that place where where I did have that. And, you know, by going two or three times a month doing this, I got there. I got there. In my estimation, you know, Blue Blue recorded me a couple of, a couple of my sets. And I remember once afterwards, I was like, I think I did pretty well. And she's like, oh, it was awful. Look. And so I'm looking, I, I watch it back and I was like, that's a good set for me, honey. I just, I hate to break it to you, but that's, that's about as good as I get. I'm kill- this is me killing it. This is me killing it. <laughs> that's excellent. So I find you very brave in general. You know, you've have done a lot. You're a strong person. What advice would you give to people who may not have the fortitude that you do just naturally, you know, your natural intestinal fortitude? What kind of advice would you give people who want to try something new? Maybe they feel stuck. Maybe they just need, a. they're listening to this. They need a little inspiration for them to just make a baby step to start doing something. Do you have any advice that you could provide? Sure. So I have, I have, Two pieces of advice, honestly. The first is, if you're not going to do it for yourself, find somebody else who 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 motivates you to do it. Like, for instance, it was my son. Okay, I really wanted to model this for my child. I grew up, and you know, while my mother was a was a model in New York City, the extent of the people I was exposed to in the creative fields was minimal. You know, it was a lot of professionals, a lot of business people. And then my mom, the model, which isn't available. It wasn't wasn't available to me, (laughs) you know, so, so that was never entered my mind, but, Mm. but I wanted, it, it feels really good. It feels really good 
modeling this for my son. So if, if, if you can find somebody that you're trying to be your better self for, I think that's a huge help. I mean, again, like almost every Tuesday night for about a four month, five months timeframe, I would be, I'd I'd do my act for my family before I walked out the door to go to the neck of the woods to, to, to go perform. And so my son saw me doing that. And he saw me like try jokes out different ways. And he saw me get nervous because every Tuesday night without fail, I was supposed to be at the bar by seven o'clock and about 6.30, I would be kind of pulling my hair out saying, why do I do this to myself? What, you know, why do I, why am I putting myself through this? And so he saw me do that and he saw me persist and, and, you know, he also, it became a family affair, honestly, Rick. Like, um, I remember I was set to perform on a Tuesday, and this was back when Jeffrey Epstein was in the news. Um, and no material had, there. No material, none. <laughs> no, but he did. He had just killed himself. He killed himself on like a Saturday, wow. and I was supposed to perform t- the following Tuesday. And I turned to Blue and I said, I'm going to need a Jeffrey Epstein joke. Help me out here, right? So she came up with something. We, we were talking about it together. I remember this upstairs in, in, in our bedroom and Jersey's room is at the other end of the hallway and he hears us talking and I'm like asking Blue, is it, well, I'll, I'm trying to decide if I should tell the joke first or not. Anyway, I'll tell the joke first. So this is the joke that Jersey, my son, he was eight at the time, Blue, my wife, and I came up with. We're here for it. Okay. So... It's official. Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. I believe it. Airbnb had just dropped him as a super host. Like that's where you that's where you laugh, Rick. Don't worry. But anyway, I remember talking to Blue and I was like, what's funnier? Is it committed suicide or killed himself? And I hear Jersey at the end of the hall yell, suicide. Suicide's funnier. <laughs> I mean, it's a family affair at this point. Yes. And, and you I know, I, I loved him getting in on that. I, yeah. I, had a, I had a paid gig during quarantine for a tech company. A friend um, hired me to, to do my act to his team. Um, he, he hired entertainment every week as part of his team meetings. And I paid Jersey some of that money to write me some jokes. Like my job as a parent would be done if he grows up to be a comedy writer. I would love that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, That'd be awesome. So anyway, find somebody who, if you're not going to do it for yourself, somebody that yep. you, you want to do it for. And then my second piece of advice would be, and I learned this early and I was lucky to learn it as early as I did. And I remember it was, it was, I'm going back. It was sixth grade. And I had just made the girls basketball team with my two best friends, Doreen and Jennifer. And I had always been, you know, kind of a goody goody, did well in school, teacher's pet, et cetera. Well, these friends of mine were goofy. They were fine students, but they were, they were a lot of fun and they were very popular. Anyway, one night after basketball practice, as we're waiting for our, to get picked up, um, by our parents to go home. They it's it's freezing cold. We're in northern New Jersey. It's a cold, cold winter night. They decide to stick their tongues on the flagpole outside, right? Every movie ever exactly. shows you how that ends. Exactly. 
<laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, you guys. Well, my coach was this young guy, great guy named Kevin Stack and uh, volunteering as our basketball coach. And he just thought it was, you know, after he made sure they got, they were safe and, and their tongues were fine. He's, he was just laughing. He couldn't get enough of it. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like he, like they're his favorite. I'm not the teacher's pet anymore. And hmm. they're getting those kind, they're getting that attention because of their humor and their goofiness. And, and I know I'm funny and goofy because I'm that way at home and I'm that way with my friends. And, but for some reason I'm different at school and they only see me as a certain way in school. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even my nickname growing up, I remember Jennifer's father, Mr. Katzka used to call me good Helen in yeah. high school. If he knew I was going to be at a party, Jennifer could go. <laughs> you know, like that's how square I was. Yeah. Parents were reassured if I was going to be at the party. It's going to be a chess party or something. It's cool. No, she can go. I was I was good, Helen. But you know, because of that, I really think it was a revelation in in with that basketball coach was, you know, I am a multitude. I do, I am not just the good student. I am not sure. just this yeah. goody two shoes. I am, I can also be funny. I can also be a good athlete. Mm-hmm. And that was a revelation for me. And I think we're all multitudes. And I'm telling my son repeatedly, you know, don't let someone else tell you who you are. Don't mm-hmm. live, think you have to live up to someone else's expectations of who you are. I go, Jersey, right. you can be all these things, be the good student, be the good athlete, be the funny kid. Um, he, sure. he, you know, Jersey says he wants to be the bad boy. <laughs> kind of kills me. Cause I don't even think he knows what that means, but I'm like, you can be the bad boy. You know, I am multitudes. You are multitudes. It's such great advice. And you know, this generation coming up may not even need podcasts like this because they will have, not gone the routes that different people have gone because they they were given good role models like you can be complicated you can be a lot of things right and and that messaging of you know being who you are for yourself as opposed to what other people think i think is really valuable mm-hmm. it's really great although as i say those words i'm still thinking about how you didn't laugh at my jeffrey epstein joke um <laughs> just so you know <laughs> My good Facebook friend, New Yorker, <laughs> New Yorker critic, Emily Nussbaum, called that joke a great joke. <laughs> really, the New Yorker. Really, yeah. I, post, I posted that joke. That is hilarious. On, on Facebook before I did it. And she and I, we, ha- we have mutual friends and we're Facebook friends, although I've never met her. But she commented on that joke and she wrote, that's a great joke. And I was this close to asking her if I could quote her in my flyers. <laughs> New Yorker critic Emily Messbaum calls one of my jokes great. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to, you know, do their humor for the New Yorker crowd? I mean, they're always so lighthearted. They really are. <laughs> they are, though. Those they are. cartoons. They are. Those cartoons kill. Just stop. <laughs> it has been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for your inspiration. Uh, we lost Melissa. She must have pulled the... Got bored. Died. 
She's Googling free Whitney. She's like, what? Yeah, free Whitney. <laughs> she's literally like, she's I, like I, I could do, I got to do anything but this. So <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Your Life, the sequel. Make sure to visit our website, revital.ist, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you'll never miss a show. Or sign up for our newsletter, The Revitalist, filled with daily tips for making change in your life. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Special thanks to our audio engineer and editor, Mark Kate. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of Inspirational Change. Be the change you want to be.